Welcome to PM Lessons Learned, a podcast for project managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Increase your PM knowledge, build business relationships, increase your effectiveness, increase your marketability, gain professional support. Join our group and take part in our conference calls. Details at pmlessonslearn.com. Hello, and welcome to the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. This is podcast number 168. We are recording this session on the 4th of December, 2014. We are totally focused on the 5th edition of the PMBOK Guide. My name is Dana Safford. I'm the host of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Calls. I've been a PMP since version 2 of the PMBOK Guide. I'm also a certified ITIL version 3 expert and a Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. I have over 25 years of project management experience in the IT industry. I'm currently a Critical Situation Manager at Red Hat, and in this role I take a very complex situation that affects a Red Hat customer's enterprise production environment, and I manage a project with a virtual technical team that quickly resolves the issue. So remember, you don't have to have the term Project Manager in your job title to actually be a Project Manager. As far as announcements go, we're still in the dire needs of volunteers, so when you finish up your studies, if you'd like to come help us out, volunteer for a few things, we'd like to get some of these other calls going that we used to have, I'll talk about in a moment, and we need volunteers to make all that stuff happen. All that information is on our website, www.pmlessonslearning.com. Our presenter for this session is me, of course, and our topic is PMLL Project Risk Management Part 2, PMBOK 5E. And here we'll do the last three of the six processes that are in the Project Risk Management Knowledge Area. On the 31st of July, 2013, the fifth edition of the Guide to the Project Management Body of Knowledge, also called the PMBOK Guide, became the basis for the Project Management Professional or PMP exam. This month's PMP study group call continues the deep dive. We're almost done, as a matter of fact, into the fifth edition, or 5E, of the PMBOK. In this session, we will finish the focus on the Project Risk Management Knowledge Area as we look at the last three processes that belong to the Project Risk Management Knowledge Area as laid out in the fifth edition. I will provide insight and practical examples of everything you need to know to build your critical knowledge mass and pass the PMP exam on the first attempt. If you haven't already downloaded a PDF copy of this session's presentation, please do so. If you are in the live free screensharing.com virtual meeting room that we're in right now, the file is in the meeting resources box. When you log in, you'll see a bunch of down arrows next to the file names. If you're there, and you can just click those and download the files. If you're not in the virtual meeting room, to find out how to download the files and podcasts of all of the PM Lessons Learned sessions, go to our website, www.pmlessonslearned.com. And in the left-hand navigation column, you see a link to files and presentations. Just follow that over to our file area, and you'll be able to download not only the session for risk that we're doing right now, but all of the other presentations for all the other knowledge areas and all the 47 processes. We're almost done, as I mentioned before. We're doing the second half of risk, then we just have the integration knowledge area, and then we're done with the 47 processes. So it's taken us a while to get through there, but we're almost there. Speaking of looking at files in there, in the monthly PMP exam study group conference call file area, you'll see the slides for this session, as I mentioned. The name of the file for this session is PMLL Project Risk Management Part 2 for DEC 14. PMBOK 5E. It's a PDF file, and this title is exactly the same thing. PMLL Project Risk Management, Part 2, for December 14, PMBOK 5E. 
In the monthly PMP exam study group called File Area, you will also see a PMBOK 5th edition brain dump, a PMBOK 5th edition study resources file, and a PMBOK 5th edition ITTO list file. And remember, the Internet is a very, very big place. If you choose to use study material from another source other than PM Lessons Learned, make sure you know it's PMBOK based. Now that July 31, 2013 is well behind us, make sure that you have material based on the PMBOK 5th edition. You should remember that there's roughly about a 50% difference from the 4th edition to the 5th edition. That's my estimate. Some authors, some facilitators will give you a slightly different version. Point is, there's a big difference there, so you don't want to use anything else. Those differences are mostly in the knowledge areas, the processes, and their ITTOs. There are still also a lot of evil people out there that will still sell you material from the 4th and even the 3rd editions of the PMBOK Guide. So if the material on the website or the book or flashcards, whatever it is you are buying or you're using, especially if you're blanking down money, doesn't explicitly say that the material is based on the fifth edition of the PMBOK, leave it alone. So please be very careful out there. The world is a bad place for people trying to rip you off. Okay, so we are PMLessonsLearned.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. I'll thank you in advance those participating in this month's live conference call and those who download and use the podcast. Let's get started. I'm going to shift over to the first slide. And as normal, our first slide talks about the calls that we'd love to have when we are at full strength. Right now, we're on the PM Lessons Learned PMP study group. On the second Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our job shot call. Well, we need somebody to run that. That'll be a call for people who are in transition or with the need to identify potential career paths can go to help each other out. And finally, on the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. And on this call, it provides presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. And to listen to any of this stuff by phone or grab the podcast, go to our website, www.pmlessonslearned.com. And also, if you get a chance, please join our Yahoo and LinkedIn groups. Both of those are aptly named PM Lessons Learned. Join those guys, and you'll see the notifications of when we're doing stuff, when I throw files out there, when I post the podcast, things along those lines. So I'm going to move on to the next slide here. We have our call norms. This is an interactive call. We'd love for you to participate, but I've muted all your phone lines. So we'll cut down on the noise. So if you'd like to ask me a question, anything along those lines, you'll need to do a star six on your phone to unmute your phone, then yell out my name, get my attention. I don't mind being interrupted at all. And ask a question while it's fresh in your mind. Don't wait for a while because then you'll forget the question and I'll forget the answer. So interrupt me anytime you want. Not a problem. Star six will unmute your line and you can get my attention. And then when we're done, I'll ask you to do yet another star six and mute your line. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide. Here's our email address. BMP study at pmlessonslearn.com, and with our email address, you can ask any questions you would like on anything going on that will help you with your PMP studies and things along those lines. Moving on to the next slide, we have a bit of legalese. Participants in this call are meant to use the contents of this session as additional study material. Much of this session comes from an actual study guide. It's the Project Management Professional Exam Study Guide, the seventh edition written by Kim Heldman, put out as part of the Cybex series by John Wiley and Sons. You see the ISBN number there if you have the slides in front of you. It's a wicked good book. It is one of those two-inch thick paperback tomes that I'm sure you're used to seeing if you've been studying for a while. It's got a bunch of nifty practice tests in there, assessment tests, review questions, things along those lines. And it used to come with a CD. Now it comes with about a 390 megabyte download from the publisher's website. 
You log in up there, download that, and it has Mac and PC versions of more paper practice tests, uh, practice test engine, an online test engine, so that you can practice online. It's got a bunch of audio files as well. It's a very good deal, a lot of good stuff in there for roughly 40 to $60 U.S., depending upon where you get it from. But you don't have to use just that guide. Use whatever guide you want. I'm using this guide because much of the material in the session comes from that guide. I'm using all the stuff with the permission of the publisher. I am a registered instructor with John Wiley. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll get to the title of what we're actually talking about. We're talking about Project Risk Management, Part 2. It is December 2014. And move on to the next slide. And we've got a rough approximation of Table 3.1 from the PMBOK Guide. It's the big table with the 10 knowledge areas going horizontally as rows, the five process groups going vertically as columns, and the intersection of the rows and the columns, their stuff or no stuff, depending upon what knowledge area we happen to be talking about or what process group we're talking about. You see partway down on the row labeled number 11, Project Risk Management is highlighted in yellow. We'll be handling the last three processes there. You notice five out of the six processes from risk management are all in the planning group, and then it goes over and then monitoring, controlling. We have the last one that we'll handle in a moment. So make sure you know the things in this slide, and this is the table that you want to try to reproduce on your brain dump inside of that 15-minute time period, you know, a bunch of formulas and things like that as well to help you during the exam when you have a brain cramp, you can't remember something. Moving on to the next slide, we have our agenda. This is podcast number 168. We're talking about PMBOK 5th edition. We're finishing up the project risk management knowledge area, and we're talking about three processes in this session. Process 11.4, perform quantitative risk analysis. Process 11.5, plan risk responses. And process 11.6, control risks. Moving on to the next slide, we have the organization chart style version of the project risk management knowledge area. You'll see the head of the organization chart, if you will, is the project risk management knowledge area. You'll see there are six processes there. You notice the top three are grayed out because we did those in the last podcast. We're going to finish up the bottom three in this session. This is an eye chart. It has a numbering scheme there. It's very important, but it's very difficult to see in this particular slide. But notice that if you were going to be talking about the risk management plan input for the perform quantitative risk analysis process, you'll be talking about item number 11.4.1.1. Now, risk management plan is used in a bunch of different places, even just in this whole knowledge area is quite a few. This particular number that I just read off means with the talking about risk management plan as it pertains to that particular spot as an input to the perform quantitative risk analysis process. All right, so you don't have to worry about it for the exam. It's there to help you study, and that's all you have to worry about that guy. Moving on to the next slide. Now we're looking at a much easier view of the perform quantitative risk analysis process 11.4. This is the horizontal view of the boxes for the inputs, tools, and techniques and outputs, or ITTOs. It's much easier to see. We see there are three horizontal boxes there. And we also notice that there are six inputs, three tools and techniques, and one output. And that's all we'll say about the slides. Let's move on to the next slide. And we'll talk about performing quantitative risk analysis. Here's where we get to evaluate with a whole lot more detail. 
what's happening with this risk. You're going to put it in to some numerical sense, most likely a financial, a schedule type of thing. What's the impact in a financial point of view, from a schedule point of view, from a technology point of view, who knows what it might be, risk for government uh, oversight, who knows what it could be. But you're going to do a whole lot more to quantify the impact of that risk. Why? Because it's a bigger risk, and if it occurs, it's going to hurt you. You want to make sure that you know what that impact might be and that you have something figured out ahead of time to be able to deal with that. And that's the response thing we'll do in a little while. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to choose which of the risks we're going to use this process on. We know we're certainly going to do the red ones that our, our management said do all red ones, do some of the yellow ones. But at the bottom down here is my big honking exam point. As I said before, you're always going to do a qualitative analysis, and you'll sometimes do a quantitative analysis. Qualitative first figuring out the number, the real numbers. We, yes, we've done some numbers with qualitative analysis, yes, but they're minimal numbers. Those are wicked easy numbers to do. Okay? Now we're going to get into potentially harder numbers. Of course, for this session, we're not going to get too heavy into number crunching, but you get the point. There's a whole lot more detail needs to go into these things. Moving on to the next slide. And now we're talking about the inputs for performing quantitative risk analysis. There are six of them. I'll read them off in case you are walking the dog or doing the dishes. They are risk management plan, cost management plan, schedule management plan, risk register, enterprise environmental factors, and organizational process assets. And I'm going to move on to the next slide. And we hit the first one, the risk management plan. We've kind of seen this slide before in the earlier processes around risk management. Let's just tweak a little bit here now because now we're talking about perform quantitative risk analysis. So the risk management plan provides the guidelines that you're going to need, the methodologies and things like that that will help you figure out what you're going to do in your quantitative risk analysis. It'll provide you with all the things that you need, the thresholds that we talked about last time. And just if you are within the top third of the red area of the probability impact matrix, you have to do 27 things, where if you're in the lower portion of the red area of the probability impact matrix, you only have to do two things, something along those lines. All right, so describe the thresholds and things like that, and then you get down into the middle of the risk management plan. There'll be some things on methodology, how you're going to approach things, who's going to do what, maybe for a very high priority risk. Certain individuals must become involved, things along those lines. Maybe there's some timing. You have to handle certain risks first, other risks second, and then maybe there is some declaration of risk categories that you have to worry about as you're moving along. All right, so that's what this one's all about. Let's move on to the next slide and talk about the cost management plan. And we're going to do the cost and schedule in the same breath, if you will, in the same broad stroke, because they do the same thing. Each one of these is going to define perhaps how, in the case of financial, how your budget's going to go, in the case of schedule, how your schedule's going to go. And it might tell you how you're going to deal with risks, how you're going to schedule contingencies, how you're going to plan for contingencies that you have to worry about. If it's cost point of view, there are management reserves that you worry about. If you have residual risk, we'll get into in a moment. And it's all what's the impact, and do you look to your cost and your schedule management plans for guidance on how those are done? Because sometimes those plans are going to be handed to you. If not, you have to think about that and put them in your plan going forward at the beginning okay, so that you have those covered. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about risk register. We've hit risk register many times in between these couple of sessions. Each time we go through it, 
it means something different. Now, the risk register we're looking at here is the output of the last process where we added a bunch of things to the table that is the risk register. It's basically just a table, as I just said, that contains a list of the identified risks, the potential resources, root causes of things, triggered update categories, update categories, triggers, the qualitative numbers that you put in there where things are priority-wise, things along those lines. We're going to take the state of the risk register as it is when we finished our qualitative analysis and we are going to move it forward and we're going to be adding stuff to it in this process. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about enterprise environmental factors. <clears throat> These are the things that you cannot change or cannot control that impact your project because you work in the organization where you work. And things here that might influence your project is maybe there are some industry studies you're going to be forced to use or forced to depend upon, things along those lines that your management wants you to do because you work in a specific industry or a specific group, whatever the case might be. There's also some risk databases out there that might be available from either your industry group or some proprietary source that you are supposed to use because you're in the group that you are. Right then, there are organizational process assets. These are the things that you can control that impact your project because you work where you do. And this is basically anything that anyone has ever done in a project in front of you, before you, as the case might be. That maybe it's a similar project. Maybe they came up with a nifty checklist, a flowchart, a database, a plan, a document, a something or other that you could use. And the idea is you take those out of what I call the OPA bin. You pull those from wherever you keep all that stuff. You use it. Maybe you improve on it. Maybe you change it somewhat, and then you put it back. Right, for other people to use later on because you really want to make sure that you contribute back to what's happening, what's going on in your company. All right, so move on to the next slide. And that's it for the inputs. How fast was that? And it's not very much for inputs, but there's a lot of work to be done in the tools and techniques and the rest of the session. So let's get on and start talking about the tools and techniques. There are three of them. I'll read them off. They are data gathering and representation techniques, quantitative risk analysis and modeling techniques, and expert judgment. So let's move on to the next slide and talk about the first one, which is data gathering and representation techniques. The two we'll talk about are interviewing and probability distributions. Okay, so moving on to the next slide, we'll talk about interviewing first. It just as it sounds. You're going to talk to people. You're going to ask them what they think of the risks on your project. There's a little table down here that's actually figure from the PMBOK, but it's basically a table that lists the element that you were talking about, the type of risk, design risk, build risk, test risk, technology risk, environmental risk. As column headers, you're going to try to get out of them maybe three estimates, pessimistic, most likely optimistic, and you're going to ask them, what do you think this is going to cost, say, from a design point of view? That will follow with this chart. For the product of this project, what do you think the cheapest we're going to get out of this particular activity is? And they'll tell you. And they ask you for the most likely, and they ask for the most pessimistic. Okay? And you do the same for all the elements in your table. And then you're going to total them up. So we're coming to a total of, in this case, 41, if you have the slide in front of you. That's adding a design cost of 6, a build cost of 20, a test cost of 15. Totals 41 is the most likely. But there's a range there, too, that you can mess with should you need to. But you're interviewing people, and you're getting their opinions on what's going to happen, what could potentially happen. Better way to say that. Let's move on to the next slide, talk about probability 
distributions. Now, for probability distributions, you've seen these. We actually look at a figure 11-14 from the PMBOK in the middle of the slide. The PMBOK likes continuous probability distributions, like bell curves. There's also beta curves that they really like, and triangular distributions that they really like as well. Probably more beta and triangular than bell, because that a bell curve implies that there's an equal distribution. And we know, for the most part, that if you've got a three-point estimate, that most likely is probably not going to be right smack in the middle between the most pessimistic and the most optimistic. So you're going to be slanted in one direction or another. So a beta curve is like a bell curve, except it's smushed, if you will, in one direction, either toward the origin or away from the origin, depending upon what you're talking about. But it's one continuous thing going up and coming down. It's just a matter of which direction the smushing is going in. So one of those vertical, almost vertical lines is a bit steeper than the other. And the same with triangular distribution. Triangular distribution you would use as a result of that table we just had in the previous slide. We've got pessimistic, most likely an optimistic. You can just peg that right into the bottom, the top, in the far right of that triangular distribution. And it's just the way they tend to work out. And using your interviews, you're going to get all this together. And if you need to plot them, you can. And it depends on how many people you ask. If you ask two people, probably no sense plotting, but if you ask 100, then having a plot would be a good thing to have. It depends on what your organization wants you to do. For the test, you just have to remember that these probability distributions include normal, logonormal, triangular, beta, and uniform distributions. Uniform distribution is a bell curve. And so there's many different kinds. So that's what you have to pay attention to for the test. Let's move on to the next slide, and that's for that one. Now we'll talk about quantitative risk analysis and modeling techniques, the other tool and technique for performed quantitative analysis. There are four things here. We're going to talk basically about all four, but do it in three bullets instead of four. They are sensitivity analysis, expected monetary value analysis, decision tree analysis, and modeling and simulation. I say three because if you're doing expected monetary value analysis, you're really also doing decision tree analysis. So they're sort of smooshed together. But for the test, there are four sensitivity analysis, expected monetary value, decision tree, and modeling and simulation. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. And we'll get into one of the diagrams that they like to see. It's a tornado diagram, it's called. There is an example of it in the PMBOK. I forget which figure it is. It's sort of like better because it's less cumbersome. It's less busy, if you will. And basically, with a tornado diagram, you're going to figure out your risk. You're going to interview your experts, your expert judgment, and they're going to give you figures from both a financial point of view or a schedule point of view. Okay? So you're going to know for organizational risk, there's going to be a range, most pessimistic to most optimistic on the cost. Same with project management, quality, technical, environmental, whatever the case may be. You know what that range is. So you're going to do is take all those categories and you're going to drive a stake in the ground. That's your zero point, if you will. If you're looking at the chart or at the pin box, there's a vertical line at zero, and you're just going to stack these categories up with the one with the least amount of spread on the bottom. And then you're going to stack the next one, like stacking kids' blocks, if you will. You're going to do it upside down. And as you do it upside down, it sort of forms a tornado, if you will. Skinnier at the bottom, bigger at the top. That's why they call it a tornado diagram. Just one way to help you very easily see that in the case of this diagram, organizational risk is a lot less to worry about, has a lot less impact, maybe a better way to say it, than technical risk. Because technical risk has got a really broad one, if you will. So without getting into the numbers, that's what a tornado diagram is all about. So it's easy to see what's going on, pretty easy to do. 
move on to the next slide. We're going to get a little bit more detail now. This is spectrum monetary value. It's basically a statistical technique that calculates the average anticipated value of the pieces of your decision. So it might give you an idea of what to expect or which one to choose, better way to say that. And there's a couple different versions that you can see out there. This one has to do with income or revenue, if you will, positive flow of dollars. Now, there are some that are expense-related. So you will be choosing between various cost choices. And there are some that are net, if you will, where if you choose this alternative, it's going to gain you this much, but it's going to cost you a different amount. It's going to gain you X, but cost you Y, and it's going to have a percentage hook to it. Right? So on this picture bunch of less than science, which you will, and at the far left, you've got a starting point. And that's your decision. And then you're going to branch off into at least two. There can be more, but for this example, we've got choice X and choice Y. Choice X is going to give you $7,000, reusing dollars in this case. Choice Y is going to give you $5,000. We'll use a positive point of view for right now. And so you've got two choices. What are you going to do? Off of every choice, you're going to have a good outcome and a bad outcome, or maybe multiple outcomes. But for my example, we've got a good outcome and a bad outcome, and you have to have a probability for each one of those. So on the top of my chart, a 60% probability of a good outcome. So with that number, 60%, you multiply 0 0.6 times 7,000, and the expected value of that decision is $4,200. 0 0.6 times $7,000, okay? 4,200. Now, the probability of a bad outcome is 0.4. Do the math, 0.4 times 7,000 is 28 relatively easy. The point to remember in this big yellow box on my chart saying no matter how many outcomes you have, the probabilities of those have to add up to 100%. They can't add to 90. They can't add to 110. They have to add to 100%. Okay? So there's that. Now we take the bottom path, choice Y. Choice Y gives you $5,000. The probability of a good outcome for choice Y is 80%. So less money but higher probability. Do the math, 80% times 5,000 is $4,000. And on the poor outcome, 20%, the 80 and the 20 add up to 100, so that's a good thing. And if 80 and 20 adds to 100. And 0.2 times 5,000 is $1,000. So in the far right-hand column of this graphic, we see that we range from $1,000 coming in to 4,200. And if you're a betting person, a gambling person, you probably want to take the 4,200. That's the one that has the highest expected value. It has a bit lesser probability of coming in, but it's still pretty high. But if it doesn't come in, you're only going to get 28. So you get to choose based on your risk aversiveness that we talked about last time. If we were to turn this around and say this is going to cost you, this was a net cost type of diagram, you'd want to pick the one with the least amount of cost probably. So you want to pick the bottom one that's only $1,000 of cost as opposed to the top one that's $4,200. So it depends on how you write them up, you know, whether they are income, whether they are revenue, whether they are cost, or whether they're both. And there's a net, and you have to do a little bit more math to figure out what the net is. Okay? So that's how the decision tree analysis works and expected monetary value. Okay, I'm going to move on. And now we're going to talk about Monte Carlo modeling analysis. We're into the modeling side of things now. And it's basically a simulation technique that is used to try to peg the ranges of what your project could cost from a financial and a time point of view. The big honking exam point there says Monte Carlo analysis is an iterative number crunching analysis, typically using cost or schedule variables. Okay, so you can do it by hand if you want to. 
but it's better to use a computer. The Microsoft Excel, a few of the other spreadsheet programs have Monte Carlo plugins that you can use, or there are separate packages that you can buy that'll do Monte Carlo analyses for you. And you just tell it parameters and it'll do it. You won't have to do it for the test. You just have to know what a Monte Carlo analysis is. And every time you throw a set of values at a Monte Carlo analysis, it just crunches the numbers and produces a probability distribution. It produces one of those distributions we talked about a few slides ago. And if you've got 100 variables, you certainly don't want to do that by hand, but a computer and a Monte Carlo analysis would be a really good thing to do. It'll build that distribution for you of what your cost could potentially be, and then you'll have an idea of what to look for. And you can use them for schedule as well as cost. Okay, so moving on to the next slide. Then we have simulation techniques. It's almost the same thing. We have two honking exam dots here. The first one is, according to the PMBOK, simulation techniques are recommended for predicting schedule or cost risk because they are more powerful than the EMV and less likely to be misused. Now, you could argue with that statement, but remember, you're sitting for the PMP exam. So no matter what you personally feel about expected monetary value, your answer for the test is a simulation is much better at predicting your schedule of cost risks. Because whatever certification test you take, you want to answer in the way that that certification body wants you to answer. What you think of reality means nothing. Okay, so just remember that. And the other exam point down there is simulation techniques are used to predict schedule and cost risks as well. You can do schedule simulations using precedence diagramming method, that's what they tend to use if you're doing a schedule simulation. And if you're doing a cost one, they tend to use the work breakdown structure, or WBS, because it's already structured, all ready to rock and roll, and you can just plug stuff in, plug your parameters in, and away you go. All right, so that's pretty straightforward, pretty self-explanatory. Right, so let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about expert judgment. This is basically required to allow you to talk to other folks who have gone before you, see where they have found different impacts to cost, schedule, whatever the case might be. They can help you also interpret the data. If you've got something you don't quite understand, an expert might be able to help you out there. So take advantage of them whenever you can. They can help you identify the weakness of the tools. Well, that one didn't work so well. This tool over here worked even better and gives you basically a better idea of how to move forward given what your organization is all about, the politics in your organization, the culture in your organization, things along those lines would help you out uh, a whole lot more if you ask your experts around to make sure that you don't miss anything, you don't leave anything out is another way to say that. Okay? And let's move on to the next slide. And we got our one output, and then we'll talk a little bit more as well. As usual, we expect our risk register updates as our outputs are adding more columns to the table, more columns to the spreadsheet, whatever the case may be. Now you've done your analysis, you're going to throw some more numbers in there, you're going to throw in the time, the cost, whatever. You're going to maybe have a prioritized list now because you figured out the near term from the far term, the high ones from the low ones, and maybe there's some trending you've done as well. It's all going to be captured in your risk register. And underneath risk register updates, there are four different things I want to talk about. Probabilistic analysis of the project, probability of achieving cost and time objectives, prioritized list of quantified risks, and trends in quantitative risk analysis results. Let's move to the next slide and talk about probabilistic analysis of the project. A couple slides worth. A probabilistic analysis is really the forecasted results of your schedule and cost as you figured things out. If you've gone through a Monte Carlo analysis or a simulation of some kind, you've got some indication numerically 
of what your project's going to take from a cost schedule point of view, if you will. So there's a big honking exam point down there that says, Pinbox says this output is often expressed as a cumulative distribution, just like we saw a couple of slides back, just like I said. So you also see a stakeholder risk tolerance maybe there. The stakeholders only want to see something with a 90% probability, not a 50% probability. And so you're going to use confidence levels in order to express your probabilistic analysis. So down the bottom of the chart, I'll give you an example. Uh, suppose you have done all your work. You've got a projected schedule completion date is July 12th, whatever. It doesn't matter when you start, but your completion date is the 12th of July. And you've got an 85% confidence that number is good. It says you believe your project will finish on or before July 12th, and you believe that 85% probability that's actually going to occur. Right? Pretty straightforward. Now you've got to juxtapose that against your stakeholders, against your sponsors. What do they want? Do they only want a 90% probability, 95% probability? If so, this ain't going to cut it. This is not going to work, and you're going to have to go back and you have to refigure things and come up with a more definitive number. That's at least 90%. So that's what probabilistic analysis is all about. You're going to provide a confidence number on either the schedule or the cost. You can do it either way. You know, schedule is going to be finished by July 12th. It's going to cost a million dollars with 85% probability. Well, maybe that's not good enough for them. They want you to come a lot closer. At least you just have to figure out what it is your management wants, your stakeholders want, and work to provide that level for them. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll see that the probability of achieving cost and time objectives really is there's a process on how to do it. You're going to assign and document all the stuff that you've gone through from what we've talked about so far because they're going to want to ask, well, how'd you come by that? What do you mean by that type of thing? So make sure you understand and document everything that you've put into your objectives and your risks so that you can build those numbers and defend those numbers when you're challenged on them because in a lot of organizations you will be challenged on them, if not by your management because they want to make sure you know what you're talking about. But in some organizations, you're competing against other projects. And if your project only has an 80% probability of completing within some number that they want and someone else has a 90%, which one do you think they're going to choose for the most part? So you've got to be really careful and really understand all the risks and the probabilities and quantify the whole thing, get that list together so that if you have to tweak anything, you can. So prioritize the list and then find some trends. Maybe you can figure out there's some trends and what's going on, identify those trends, and be able to talk to them. Make sure that as you try to do an iteration of your risk analysis, you include some of those trending. What happens if the trend continues in a good direction? What happens if the trend continues in a bad direction? What are you going to do? And that's what the probabilistic thing is all about. Okay, so that's it for this process. We'll go to the next slide and we'll get into plan risk responses beginning of the next process. What you're looking at is process 11.5. What you're looking at is the horizontal representation of the ITTOs, and we see that plan risk responses has two inputs, four tools and techniques, and two outputs. So I'll move on to the next slide. We'll begin to talk about the general concepts of plan risk responses. Basically, it's the process of trying to figure out what are you going to do. You've figured out the financial impact now, we talked for a few minutes, if you will, on quantitative analysis. That can take a long time to do, but once you've got the numbers, now you have to figure out what are you going to do. You're going to take the ones that are maybe a high-impact schedule or cost-wise, and you're going to develop a huge plan, a huge response plan around that, and maybe some of the smaller ones, not so much. But this is where all that stuff takes place. Is figure out what it is you're going to do to reduce threats and also to improve opportunities as well, enhance those opportunities so you might actually be able to run across them. 
The benefit you see here is if you, if you address the risks by the priority and insert the right resources and activities into the budget and schedule and things like that, you can actually come out ahead is one way to look at it. You'll minimize the negative side and maximize the positive side. So taking some time to figure out how you're going to respond to risk is a very good thing. And to move on to the next slide. And we'll talk about the two inputs that we have for plan risk responses. They are risk management plan and risk register. So if you're out raking the leaves or shoveling snow, whatever the case might be, you now know what those are. Let's move on to the next slide. And we'll get into the inputs a bit more. Versus risk management plan, this is... Uh, there are the important, uh, th as we talked about earlier, this is going to give you all of the methodologies and the wherefores that you need to pay attention to when you're planning risk management. So as you're working through the risk management plan for this process, you want to look at the roles and responsibilities that are laid out so only certain individuals might be able to do certain things if you come across an opportunity or a specific threat. And they give you some other definitions, maybe some timing for reviews, when you're going to pay attention to certain things more in the short term, other things in the longer term, and maybe take a look at your thresholds a little bit more, see if there's anything there that will help you out from a planning point of view. Then, of course, there's always the risk register that's there to help you keep track of it all. So you're going to be using this as an input. You've added more things now from the quantitative analysis, and now you're going to look at the table, and if it says that you must create responses for items that have an impact of so much financially, so much time-wise, then you'll see that on the risk register, and those are the ones you're going to address. Right? The risk register is a very versatile tool, and you just need to keep using it all throughout your time of planning out risks and risk responses. Right? So now let's move on to the next slide, which are the tools and techniques for planned risk responses. There are four of them. I'll read them off. They are strategies for negative risks. Those are also called threats. Strategies for positive risks. Those are also called opportunities. Contingent response strategy and expert judgment. So let's move on to the next slide. All right, so on this slide, I basically did a nice colorful thing here that summarizes what you're going to do for the strategies for each type of risk. You have a negative risk or a threat. There are four strategies that you could employ to address those. They are avoid transfer, mitigate, and accept. And then on the positive side for opportunities, there are three strategies that you could use there to take advantage of those opportunities there, exploit, share, and enhance. So let's move to the next slide, and we'll talk about each one of those. First, the negative side or the threat side. Let's talk about avoid first. And avoid, just like it sounds, you want to evade that sucker altogether. Try to eliminate it any way you can. If you're building something with wood, and wood is subject to bugs eating it, don't build it out of wood. Build it out of metal. Build it out of plastic. Something along those lines. You avoid the risk altogether by eliminating the cause or changing the project plan somehow so that it protects your project objectives from whatever that risk event is. Just going to do whatever you can not to run across that risk. Pretty easy. Then there's transfer. Transfer, you're going to move the risk of consequences that could occur to a third party. Being right outside of Boston here, we have our Red Sox baseball team. Uh, anyone who follows the Red Sox or watches the commercials knows that there is a big furniture store chain here in New England that every year for the past few years has had a promotion. They've got a sign on the wall in Fenway Park. And if any of the Red Sox hitters 
happen to hit that sign, they have to hit a home run, number one, but if the home run hits the sign, then anybody who's bought furniture in the whole chain of stores from a certain date on, I think it's June 1st to the end of the promotion, gets a full rebate for the purchase price of their furniture. Okay, so that could add up to a ton of money. How does this furniture store chain deal with that? They transfer the risk to somebody else. They actually buy insurance policies. Sure, they pay a lot in premiums for that insurance policy, but it's going to be less than what it would cost them to give away the free furniture. And the probability of a home run actually hitting that sign is pretty small. It's almost like hitting the lottery. The risk is that small. So it's a pretty easy bet for them to do. And they've been doing this for a bunch of years now, and they've never had to pay out. So it's a huge promotion for them. They sell a whole lot of furniture because people think, oh, I can get it for free. So it hasn't gone away, but they've just migrated the management and the responsibility and the outcomes to somebody else. So they don't have to worry about it. Relatively brilliant concept, if you will. Let's move on to the next slide. And then there's mitigate. Mitigate, what you've got to try to do is reduce either the probability that the risk is going to occur, change your path a little bit, or try to reduce the impact. Well, if it happens, maybe there's something you can do in the front end to lessen the impact, whatever it might be. There's a big exam point there. The PEMBOK says the purpose of mitigation is to reduce the probability that a risk will occur and to reduce the impact of the risk to a level where you can accept the risk and its outcomes. So you may not be able to reduce it to zero is the point of that bullet, but you can reduce it to something that brings it down into the next category, which is accept. And with accept, you're just going to let it happen, okay, and just hope it doesn't hurt you so much. Maybe it's in that green area that we talked about earlier, that .04. It's not enough to spend a lot of cycles worrying about it. We're just going to cross our fingers, do some praying, whatever the case may be, that the trigger doesn't occur and the risk doesn't occur. And that's what accept is all about. If it does, it does. You'll deal with it. Okay. Now, how do you apply these things? What makes you decide what to apply when? So let's move to the next slide and talk about which method to use. Here's another graphic, so I'll describe this for folks. Basically, we've got a quadrant here, XY chart, if you will. On the x-axis, we've got tolerance for risk. So at the origin, it's low tolerance going out to the right is a high tolerance for risk. On the y-axis, we have the procedural stuff that you have to do. You may remember from last time, it was like almost like a tornado diagram, so that as the probability that a risk was going to occur, there was more bureaucracy, more hurdles, more stuff you had to do. That's this stuff here that you're paying attention to. So the idea is we've got four different ovals going from the top left of the quadrant down to the bottom right. And the first one is if you have a low tolerance for risk and you want to avoid the risk, you want to make sure you have a whole lot of rigid policies and procedures in place and what to do in order to avoid that risk. Right? So you look at your tolerance. If it's low, you want to avoid. In the next one, up along the x-axis, further right on the x-axis is transfer. If you're going to transfer the risk to somebody else, you still have to have policies and procedures and, and a lot of stuff, a lot of guidelines, but not as much as you need to if you're going to avoid the risk. So you can down a little bit less. And uh, take another step down with mitigate. Further along on the x-axis, if you want to mitigate stuff, there's still stuff you have to do, but it's a lot less than transfer and avoid and such. So you need to pay attention to a few things you want to do. And then finally, there's accept. With accept, you're pretty much very low on the procedural stuff. It's for people with high risk tolerances, they're just going to take it. And you know, whatever happens is going to be, they have a high tolerance for risk. They might be risk seekers. Who knows? 
but that's how you apply these methodologies. If you've got a low tolerance for risk, you want to avoid it, which means you have to have a lot of policies and procedures, all the way down to accepting if you have a high tolerance for risk and you've got basically nothing. It's just going to let it happen. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. And now we'll talk about what we do, the strategies for a positive risk or an opportunity. Remember those strategies are exploit, share, and enhance. And we'll talk about the first one, exploit, do whatever you can to make it occur. You want to steer into that thing. So you're going to exploit that thing. You're going to lean to see if you can make that thing occur, whatever it's going to take. And do what you can to make sure that all the triggers line up, all the planets align, whatever the case may be, so that that trigger will occur and you can take advantage of that opportunity. And then there's share. Maybe in order to get to that point where you can take advantage of the opportunity, you don't quite have everything you need. So you have to enlist a third party who can bring to the table that piece that you don't have. So what you're going to do is you're going to share the opportunity with another company. And you have some agreement as to two shares, what percentage, whatever the case may be. But you have to enlist the aid of somebody else that brings the pieces that you don't have in order to take advantage of that. And then finally there's enhance. And enhance, you're going to closely watch things to make sure that if you have to adjust something along the way, you can make some minute adjustments that will get you there. It's not as broad as exploit. You still would like to make sure that it happens, but you're not willing to bet the farm to make it happen, if you will. You're not willing to risk everything. So if you can tweak a little here, a little there, and see if it's going to get you closer to the trigger point, then fine, do that. But you want to make sure that you watch what's going on. You need to watch those triggers and identify all those root causes to make sure you know what's going on. Okay? And then move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about a contingent response strategy. And with contingent response strategy, this basically says that some responses are designed to be used only if a certain event occurs. So only if we can do that exploit that I talked about earlier, then we're going to do X. Or only if we have to transfer the debt negative risk do we use this strategy. So it's going to have different trigger points, different thoughts, different steps based upon the type of risk it is and what you're going to need to do. Right? So if you can get certain things to occur, then great. Then you might want to take advantage of it. And your contingent response strategy will look at what's happening. And if you're missing some milestones, what are you going to do? If you're missing a supplier, go get a supplier, something along those lines. It depends on what it is. But something happens when your supplier drops off the face of the earth. You know, what are you going to do? They go belly up out of business. How are you going to cope with response? That's a contingent response strategy. Okay? Moving on to the next slide, then there's expert judgment. And in this case, like I said before, you're going to solicit inputs from knowledgeable parties, that people who have done this similar type of projects before or worked risks before. You might have a risk expert for your entire company or for your division, whatever the case might be. You go talk to those people. And you find out what they suggest you do for a specific type of risk or event, anything along those lines. And anybody, I've mentioned a risk expert in your company, but you might look outside as well. So there's people who specialize in risks. So they might have specialized education, knowledge, skills, experience, whatever the case might be. All right, let's move on to the next slide. And we'll talk about the outputs for planned risk responses. There are two official outputs, but I'm going to talk about a whole lot more. The two official outputs, if you are on a train or on a bus, are project management plan updates and project document updates. But I'm going to talk about a whole bunch more because I still think there are some risk register updates that we need to worry about. And as we worry about those risk register updates, we'll be needing to talk about contingency plans, 
fallback plans, residual and secondary risks, and contingency reserves. And then finally, we'll talk about risk-related contract decisions as well. So let's move on to the next slide and begin some of these things. First, we're going to talk about project management plan updates. And basically, you have to look at all your subsidiary plans. So you look at schedule plan, cost plan, quality plan, procurement plan, staffing plan, and you see if you have to do anything to them. I don't think I've said it in this session yet, so I'll mention that there is a table in Chapter 4 of the PMBOK that has two columns in it. The left-hand column is labeled project planning elements, and the right-hand side is project documents. And if you look at the list of the things that are in the left-hand column, you see that everything in that left-hand column has the word plan or baseline after whatever it is, schedule plan, scope baseline, things along those lines, where everything in the right-hand column that's a project document does not have the word plan or baseline after it. So risk register, stakeholder register, issue log, things along those lines. Those are project documents. Right? So basically the whole output of plan risk responses is making sure that stuff in those two columns are updated. And we just finished talking about the planning stuff with the word plan. Down the bottom of the slide are all the things that are baseline, scope baseline, schedule baseline, cost baseline. Make sure that if there are impacts to those things, because it's time and money, right, that they are updated as well so that you are not surprised if anything happens and you keep track of all this stuff. Let's move on to the next slide get into the project documents that might wind up changing. As I mentioned, these are the things that don't have the word plan or baseline after them. So inside of the risk register, you may be going to update the risk corner column or the assigned responsibilities column. Maybe you've developed a whole new strategy that you have to now document and put in there as well. And some specific actions might be around that you're going to want to do. Maybe some new trigger conditions or symptoms or warning signs have been developed, and now you've got to document those. And budgeting schedule activities need to change as necessary. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. And then other project document updates that you want to pay attention to are the assumptions log. Make sure that anything new that's come up is addressed there. Technical documentation for your project, make sure if there's anything new there, you put it in the appropriate place where that specific element goes. And then any change requests that come along, you're always going to monitor things, make sure it's in control, but as soon as something goes out of control, you have to slap it back into control. That means a change request most likely, and you have to make sure you've got everything documented in your change request. And then as the change requests are processed, if you will, it's all going to be processed and generated and processed through the Perform Integrated Change Control process down in the integration knowledge area that we'll be talking about in the next couple of sessions as we finish up the 47 processes. All right, so there's a lot there. Let's be aware of all that stuff. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about the first set of risk register updates. I've got a big table here, but basically it says that in your risk register update, you've got a whole lot of stuff that we've talked about, all the columns, things like that, and you've got who knows how many columns on yours, but they cover things like the ranking and the outputs and who's going to do what, things like that. But there's a few new ones that need a little bit of explaining, and they are contingency plans, fallback plans, list of residual and secondary risks, and contingency reserves. Okay, so let's move to the next slide and talk about those guys. Contingency planning 
is really the outcome of contingent response strategy that we talked about a little while ago. And basically, it doesn't attempt to really reduce the probability or anything along those lines. But what it does is it tells you that if something occurs, then here's what you're going to do about it. And it just allows you to have better plans in place. And you only consume that contingency if the event occurs. If it doesn't occur, then you don't have to worry about it, if you will. Okay? Makes sense? So contingency allowances or reserves, they're a common process, a common way to do things. The contingency reserves can include project funds or schedule, for that matter, that are held in reserve to offset any unavoidable threats that might occur for project scope, schedule, cost, quality, anything along those lines. It's an amount of money normally. It includes maybe some time in there as well, depending upon your organization, what they'll allow you to do. You talk with your stakeholders, you see what they're willing to accept for contingencies, and you plan those into your project. He's just trying to figure out if something should happen, here's what I'm going to do about it. But if it doesn't happen, hey, I don't have to worry about it. Relatively easy. Move on to the next slide. And then there's fallback plans. Fallback planning really needs to be developed just in case one of these things occurred. Now you've been hurt because a risk has occurred. Now what are you going to do to fall back? What are you going to do to make up time? What are you going to do to make up cost or whatever the case may be? So there are things you hope you're never going to have to do in practice. You're going to identify all this stuff. You're going to plan it out, but you really don't want to do it because if you have to do it, then that will be a surprise because you really didn't expect you were going to need to do it. And surprises are bad, as we know. So we've said numerous times. So if you can figure out all this stuff as early as you can, then you can plan all this stuff out. And you won't really have to, honestly, you don't really have to worry about fallback plans. You still need them. You still need to understand when something happens and now you're in trouble. But if you can avoid them, you don't want to do it. So fallback planning is a necessary evil, if you will, to worry about. Okay? Moving on to the next slide. And then there are things called secondary risks. There's two kinds, residual risk and secondary risk. A residual risk is the amount of risk left over after a risk has occurred, you've had an impact, you've applied your risk response strategy, and maybe your risk response strategy hasn't cleaned up everything. There's a little bit of something left over, be it a little bit of financial exposure, a little bit of schedule exposure. So there's something left over. Now, how are you going to handle that? Most of the time, your contingency plan or your fallback plan should cover that. But that's what those things go in for, are the residual risk left over from something happening, okay? And then the secondary risks. These are brand-new risks that came about because your original risk that you planned for occurred. There was something unforeseen that, oh, gee, is the, the phrase I'll say in a public podcast, but if I was in a closed room, I wouldn't say, oh, gee, I'd say something else. But a new risk that comes up as a result of implementing a response. You implemented a response, and now this brand-new thing came up. Maybe there's a union contract you didn't think of or something along those lines that now come to play because you've had to hire union workers because some of your workers left you for whatever reason. They didn't like what you're doing, and they all left. So now the only people you can bring in are union people. So now your secondary risk are all union contracts and all the other stuff that goes along with unions, something along those lines. It's not bad. It's just something you have to plan for, okay? And then move on to the next slide. And this is risk-related contractual decisions. Just what I was talking about a moment ago. If you're planning on using strategies such as transferring or sharing, you need to make sure that if you have to buy something from someplace, then you need a contract to do that. It's maybe sort of scope that out a little bit. You don't have to do all the purchase things, but maybe you set up a blanket purchase order or something, a purchase capability, better way to say it. 
set up a blanket purchase capability so if you have to use one of your contingencies, you don't have to wait six months to qualify a vendor or something along those lines. That vendor's already qualified, already ready to go. It's just now you're actually going to buy something from them or something to that effect, and you need a contract to do that, or be it for material, resources, labor, whatever the case may be. And you can prepare these things now, get them out of the way, get them all approved, because a lot of times stakeholders need to approve this stuff, and you don't want to do it as an emergency. It's much better to do it ahead of time and explain, well, this is just in case. We don't expect to have to use it, but it's just in case. Because you'd much rather approve something now that it's not an emergency than if it was an emergency, right? You sell it that way. And that way your stakeholders will be much happier because they don't like surprises because surprises are bad. All right, let's move on to the next slide, and that's it for the plan risk response process. And now we'll move off on to control risks. This is process 11.6. We're now looking at the three-box horizontal representation of the ITTOs, and we see that control risks has four inputs, six tools and techniques, and five outputs. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll begin to talk about controlling risks a bit more. This is the last process for risk management. I'll also mention that this is part of the monitoring and controlling process group. Everything we've talked to up until this point has been part of the planning process group. Now we've moved off to the monitoring and controlling process group. And what's control risk all about? Basically, it's the process of implementing what you just planned out in your risk responses. You're looking at things. You're trying to make sure you identify what's going on. You track all this stuff, and if one of the triggers trip, you say, okay, i got to implement Plan X, whatever Plan X is, or Plan A or B or C or D, whatever the case might be. And then if you wind up implementing one of those things, you see how well you did. Do you need to tweak it at all? Do you need to change it? Do you need to improve it? Is it good as is? And figure out all of that stuff. Also, at the same time, if something new should pop up, you've identified something new that you have to pay attention to, then you grab it here as well. And then you start back over at the beginning of doing the qualitative and quantitative. Always remember, always do a qualitative review. Sometimes do a quantitative review. Let's do the same thing and catch back up. And the key benefit of this process is that it improves the efficiency of the risk approach throughout the whole project life cycle. So you're always doing risk. You're not just doing it one time is the point here. Let's move on to the next slide. And now we're getting into the inputs for control risk. There are four of them. I will read them off in case you are still on that plane or walking the dog. They are project management plan, risk register, work performance data, work performance reports. So let's move on to the next slide and we're going to talk about all of these one at a time. And we'll start off with the project management plan. The project management plan is going to have the risk management plan in it. The risk management plan is a subsidiary portion of the project management plan, as we've already talked about. And it's going to provide guidance for you on what to do when you're controlling risks. We're talking about controlling risks. So check that out to make sure that there's nothing new in there that you need to worry about because you're in controlling risk now. Then there's risk register. As we've been saying all along, this is a table or a spreadsheet or something along those lines. Now that we are using it as an input to control risks, this risk register is very full. It's wicked full. There's a lot of stuff in here. Now, we initially started off a risk register with just a few things in it, and now we've added, we have identified risks, we've identified owners, we've agreed upon plans and responses and control actions and contingency plans and all kinds of stuff, warning signs, residual and secondary risks, things along those lines in there. 
So all that stuff is in there, and now you're going to use it to let you know what you need to pay attention to for control risks. So if you're not sure, that's where you go check is your risk register, and all that stuff will be in there. There's also a thing called a watch list, basically all the green things that we talked about. We're back in the green section of the probability impact matrix. So all those green things and even some of the yellow things, if you haven't put a strong or very detailed action plan together, keep them in a watch list just so that if something crops up that you do not expect, you'll still be watching for these things. And that's what a watch list is all about. We're going to move on to the next slide. We'll talk about work performance data. This is the raw stuff that you measure, deliverables, what deliverables have occurred, what ones have not what progress have you made, cost information, how much have you spent on various things. It's all the raw stuff that help you understand the performance of your project. Right? Then look at work performance reports. Work performance reports is the result of taking all that raw stuff, the work performance data, and analyzing it. You're looking at it to make sure you're doing trend analysis, variance analysis, earned value, forecasting, all that other stuff. You process it so you now know the status of things. Are you ahead of schedule, behind schedule, over budget, under budget? What is your forecast? What milestones have you met? Things along those lines. It's all analyzed, and now you're going to report it out. So work performance data comes first. You add value to it, and it becomes work performance reports. So you're going to have some type of presentation, book, email, whatever the case might be, where your organization will let you know what it is they want to see from schedule, from earned value, from anything along those lines, forecast, and you're going to present it to them somehow. And you're going to provide that information. That's work performance reports. For all about. All right, so you have all that stuff there. And then those work performance reports to let you know how far along and maybe you had a whole bunch of risks that you were expecting after a certain milestone occurred in your project plan. We work performance reports to tell you the milestone occurred and now using it to control risks. Oh, I got a bunch of risks I have to now pay attention to and see if they're actually going to occur. And that's why you see work performance reports there. So that's it for the inputs. Let's move on to the tools and techniques. There are six of those. I'll read them off in case you're on a plane someplace or doing the dishes. They are risk reassessment, risk audits, variance and trend analysis, technical performance measurement, reserve analysis, and meetings. Let's move on and we'll talk about each of those in turn. Risk reassessment is something that you do as you're moving along and some risks might have already occurred or, as I mentioned, that milestone is, has occurred and now you're expecting some risk to happen. Let's make sure that all of the attributes that contributed to that risk are still valid. Maybe they're not. Or maybe because a risk has already occurred, now maybe you've got some residual risk is right upon you now, so now you have to do some additional planning because there was a residual risk there that you didn't plan for in the beginning. That's what risk reassessment is all about. Then there are risk audits. These are done to make sure your risk planning process up to snuff. Is it good enough to provide your organization, your project, with what it needs in order to move forward? And if it's not, then you need to tweak it somehow. And the format will vary depending upon what you're doing. But if the audit finds something is not up to par, then you've got to take steps in order to fix it. You should also do risk audits fairly regularly as well, just to make sure you're not forgetting something or whatever. Moving on to the next slide. And there are variance and trend analysis. This is where you start to look at all the work information that you have. Make sure 
that you're four months into a 12-month project, it would be good to see that you are roughly a third of the way through all of your tasks, all your schedule, things along those lines. Maybe a third of the way through your money. Money isn't spent in a linear fashion by any means, but you were you were expected to be on your financials and things along those lines, and it's where you're expected to be with risks and things along those lines, just to make sure that where you, you want to be. And you can see how you're trending to make sure, well, if things are going the way they are, we'll be in great shape, or if things are going the way they are, we're going to be in terrible shape. We might have to do something different. And that's where you're going to find this stuff is in your variance, in your trend analysis. Then this technical performance measurement is where you're going to on a more technical project, maybe not building a birdhouse or something like that, but on a more technical project, is everything where you expected it to be as well? The technology is working extremely well. I had one project not too long ago, just before I retired, where we were hoping to use SharePoint to manage a bunch of stuff. And it turns out that once we decided we weren't sure whether it was going to scale very well because we thought we might in some instances have 10,000 rows of data that we'd have to put into SharePoint. And so we did a quick scalability test. And, man, did that thing fail miserably. Wow. So we very quickly had to abandon our use of SharePoint and had to move over to a custom-designed database that could scale up to this level that we needed to scale at. So those are the types of things that was re-identified that there was a risk. SharePoint might not cope. And so once we get to the point where we could do it, we did a scalability test, and it failed. So we already had our response plan all set up, and we already actually had people already aligned to do the actual work, but wasn't sure we needed them or not. So it worked out very well that we needed them, and they got to work right away. We didn't have to wait for them at all. So that technical performance measurement, it comes in handy to make sure that you were where you expect to be. And if there's any deviation, then you need to make sure that you take some corrective actions. Because if you are not where you expected to be, that's a surprise. Surprises are bad, and you need to go fix surprises. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about reserve analysis. If you have a relatively large project, maybe you have some reserves set aside. So if you have to incur some costs, in order to deal with a the risk, then you have some money to do that. That's the good news. The bad news is if you don't incur that risk, don't need that money, you don't get it, and you don't get to include it, but it's there in case you need it. So it's always good to make sure you've got the risk set up, you've done enough analysis to know how much you're going to need, and just make sure that you've got enough there. And then it's meetings. It's the last one there on this slide. And it's just status meetings. Basically, is going to let people know where you're at from as far as your risks go and you'll have all that stuff laid out ahead of time and just let them know how you're faring, basically is how that works out. Always talk about risk early and often to make sure there are no surprises. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about the outputs from control risk. There are five of those guys. I'll read them off in case you're doing the ironing. They are work performance information, organizational process asset updates, change requests, project management plan updates, project document updates. We'll move on to the next slide with the first one. Work performance information, this basically provides a mechanism to communicate and support whatever decision-making you're doing in your project. It's high-level stuff, if you will, taking data and performance reports and munching them together, adding value at each step along the way, and this is the high-level stuff that you're going to use, the mechanism you're going to use in order to make decisions. So it's relatively easy. We have project management plan updates. As you're going through and adding things, as you're working through your project, add stuff to your project management plan. You're adding staff, you're adding people, you're adding risks, you're adding many baselines that you've done. 
whatever the case might be, then you should make additions to keep that plan up to date. Move on to the next slide. Some more outputs, project document updates. And same with project documents. These would be things like assumption logs, performance reports, earned value reports, any network diagram, anything along those types of things, you should be updating your project document repository all the time. It's going to be somewhere in your project repository. We're going to keep all this stuff. Back when I first started doing projects, all that stuff was on a piece of paper in a file cabinet. That doesn't happen so much anymore. It's going to be on a SharePoint, in a database someplace, something electronic for sure, file share someplace. So it's much easier to keep track of and retrieve no matter where you're at. So take advantage of the project management information system, PMIS, and the technology that's out there because that's a good thing to use. So I'll move on to the next slide. Then there's change requests. Those come along because a risk happened and now something's not right and you need to change something. So the way the waterfall stuff works with the PMI, if something's not in process, something's not the way it should be, you have to slap it back into process. You do that with a change request. And you always, always, always use a change review process and a change review board or some other aptly named body to do that. That will be on the test for sure. Also on the test, a big honking red dot there, a workaround. That is basically an unplanned response to a negative risk event. Something's happened, something bad that's happened and something's not working right, and you've developed this quickie little fix, if you will, this quickie little workaround. It's not part of your response planning because if it was part of your response planning, it would be planned. You would not have to work around anything. You would just implement whatever your risk response plan was. But since you have no risk response plan for this particular thing, you have to use a workaround. Right? So that's it just says how you're going to deal with this thing. What are you going to do? And hopefully they'll allow you to use some of your reserves for that. Some places do, some places don't. For the exam, it's okay to use your risk reserves for a workaround. Moving on to the next slide, a little bit more with change requests. Now we have recommended corrective actions. Remember a while back I said that the PMI likes to see everything going according to plan, and if something is out of plan, you slap it back into control. The recommended corrective actions is what you use in order to slap things back into control. These are the things that realign the performance of the project back to what the project management plan says it should be. And they include contingency plans and workarounds, things we've already talked about. Then there are recommended preventive actions. These are the things that you wind up doing in order to prevent things from going messy in the future. So recommended corrective actions are something bad has already happened and you need to fix it. Recommended preventive actions are the things that you can do in the future to keep things from going bad again. It's relatively straightforward. So let's move on to the next slide. We have OPA updates, which is basically historical information, the templates, all that other stuff. Remember, OPAs, organizational process assets, are the things that you get to use all the nifty little trinkets, checklists, spreadsheets, Word documents, templates, whatever the case might be, that other people have developed that you can use. Well, if you can add to that pile of stuff, you should, and help other people out. So if you come up with a nifty new way to list residual and secondary risks, then by all means, you should do that. Let's move on to the next slide. And with that, we are done with control risks, which also means we are done with the project risk management knowledge area. All right, so with that, let me launch into my outro that PM Lessons Learned conducts three conference calls each month. This is the monthly PMP exam study group conference call and podcast that we're on right now because it is the first Thursday of the month. When we're at full strength, we'd love to have on the second Thursday of each month our PM Lessons Learned Job Shop call. So we need people to run that. 
And finally, the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to hold our PM Lessons Learned Practices call. We'd love to have people to help out there so we can provide presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. Okay, so that's it for this session of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. I'll again thank the live participants on this conference call and everyone that downloads and uses the podcast. We're up well over 50,000 downloads now over the years we've been doing this and doing very well on the fifth edition stuff as well. So thank you, all of you, for your support. And I'll remind you that we are pmlessonslearn.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. My name is Dana Safford. So long and keep on learning. This has been a PM Lessons Learned podcast. Project managers helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Come join our group. Visit our website at pmlessonslearned.com. Till next time, keep on learning.